Welcome to Liberated Living Ministries with John and Beverly Sheesman. You are listening to the Seed to Seed message for December 2019. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit our website, liberatedliving.com. Grace to you and greetings to you from Glenpool, Oklahoma. Well, Thanksgiving has come and gone, and the month of November has come and gone, and we didn't do a message in November. I spent the whole month preparing this word, and I kept getting more insight, and so I didn't, you know, then Thanksgiving came along, and so I didn't put out this message in November, but here it is, December, and this is number eight in our series, Know Who You Are, and the title of this month's message is going to be The Spirit of of adoption. And uh, it is possibly one of the most important messages in this whole series of knowing who you are. Because until you really know that you have been set in place as a son, and not just positionally, but the reality of knowing that you have been put into such a love relationship with the Father, and His love has been infused into you, by the Holy Spirit, and you walk in a love relationship with the Father, you'll never be able to exercise your authority that He longs for you to walk in and exercise as you do the Father's will, taking dominion in the earth and expressing His kingdom in the earth. And so I'm excited about this word, and I know it's going to be a blessing to you And I'm going to start off and I'm going to take a couple of the verses that we've already looked at in the series and use them as the launching pad. First of all, Romans 8 and verse 15, Paul says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And then in Galatians chapter 4, He says in verse 4, In the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The word adoption there is a combination of two Greek words. The one is son, And the other is to place, to place as a son. And so that is by the new birth, you are placed into the family of God as a son and a daughter. You are not given an inferior position because Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter four, he says, wherefore you are no longer servants, but you are sons. You're not under the pedagogue. You are a son. You're an heir. The estate belongs to you. You are master of all. That is your position now. You have been made a son. You're no longer a servant. What a glorious position to be in. But so many of God's children don't enjoy the reality of that position. I'm going to start off with looking at John chapter 1 and verse 12. What right do we have to call ourselves sons and daughters of God. Many times we are neutralized by examining our behavior, examining our performance, and because we don't see a reflection of the Father's nature and the Father's life in us, we tend to disqualify ourselves because of what we see with our eyes, what we sense with our natural senses, instead of coming back to what the Word says. The Word says in John 1 and verse 12, as many as received Him, to them He gave the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name, which were born, says John, not of blood, not of of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. It is through the new birth that we have become and have been given the authority because we have believed on his name. Now, this is in sharp contrast to the law. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was teaching still under the law. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon that is a guideline for behavior for us under the new covenant, but really 
it is Jesus reinforcing the dictates of the law to people who had just settled for the letter of the law instead of understanding the spirit of the law. So he says in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the law says, love your neighbor. The rabbis had said, you can hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, the word there that you may be, Geneste, is exactly the same word as is used in John chapter 1 and verse 12. Under the law, behavior determined your identity. You became a son through behaving like your father. Under the new covenant, you believe and you become a son of God. It is not behavior that determines you becoming and belonging. It is you becoming through faith in in Jesus Christ and through faith in the gospel, you become a child of God and that leads to transformed behavior. Don't use behavior as a measuring stick or a barometer of whether you are a child of God. This is where I had such struggles when I was a, a child and a young person because my daddy would preach a gospel message and I'd go forward on a Sunday night to get saved. And then sometime during that week, he'd say to me, you're not acting like a Christian. And in my mind, I thought, oh, well, it didn't work that time either. So the next time he'd give an invitation, I'd walk the aisle again to get saved. And I was absolutely sincere in wanting to get saved. I can remember sitting in the vestry with my mom trying to minister to me with tears in my eyes because I so badly wanted to be a Christian, but I couldn't behave like a Christian. And so I didn't believe I, I could be a Christian. And this is what is so sad. If you keep examining behavior and making behavior the sign of whether a child is truly born again, you're going to sow perpetual doubt in that child. You become a child of God, not because you behave right, but because you have believed the gospel. That is so important for us to grasp. Now, let me remind you of the verses that I started this whole study with. And I'm going to come back to them again and again in the, the coming weeks, because to me, that was the opening door for me. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And then this is his teaching. And which of you... Having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him. Now, this is he's talking directly to his apostles. Verse 5, we know it's the apostles who are, are talking to him and to whom he is imparting this truth. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So he shows the master and he shows the servant. And what he's trying to teach us is this, that we are both masters and at the same time, we are servants under the authority of God. And so we operate and we function in the kingdom as masters. But at the same time, we operate under the authority of the one who has commissioned us, who has called us and chosen us. And so that's a critical uh, passage of scripture. And out of that, I heard the father say to me, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. So let me talk about the spirit of adoption and his role in bringing me into not just the truth that I am a son or a daughter, but the application, the, the living in of that truth. 
the functioning in my position as a son and a daughter. And I can know that I'm a son. I can know that I'm a daughter. And yet because of ignorance of truth and because of the intimidation of the enemy, I can be neutralized in my effectiveness in functioning. You see, some of us have been so raised as servants that we would be prone to do exactly what Jesus described. That as a master, because we feel so insecure in our status, we will say to the servant, you know, sit down here, let me wait upon you. No, he said, you don't do that to the servant. You tell him, gird yourself, you wait upon me, and afterwards you can have your meal. That indicates if you know who you are as a son. If you're still functioning in your in a servant mentality, you feel badly about taking authority and exercising and walking in your authority. You, you feel compassionate. Proverbs warns, if you treat your servant too lightly, soon you'll have him as a son. You have to learn the protocol of walking as a master in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you will not ascend into the authority which you have been given in Jesus Christ, and you'll be intimidated. I remind you of the illustration that I use in my books about the time in uh, Alabama when I was faced with a young man. There were demons manifesting through him, and they called on me because I was one of the speakers there to come into the room. And I came into the room and started to deal with the spirits. And all of a sudden, that young man pointed right at my belly and said, Jelly belly, jelly belly. And I was so ashamed of being overweight that immediately that shame, that self-consciousness neutralized me. And within a few minutes, I left the room and left others to take over. Because I was so self-conscious, I did not know my authority independent of being so self-aware. And that's where the enemy trips so many of us up. He, he reminds us of where we've come from or the stuff in our past. And he neutralizes us in effectiveness. We don't rise up as masters and take our position as masters and feel comfortable in our role as masters because he reminds us of the areas of weakness, of vulnerability, of failure in our own lives. And we just get so demoralized by that, that we slink away in defeat. Servants. A servant never, ever gets to the end of performance. Because he said, when you are a servant, he said, even when you do everything that is expected of you, you have to say, I am still an unprofitable servant. So... I want us to go to a couple of verses of Scripture. And the first verse of Scripture is in Matthew chapter 10. And you'll remember that Jesus was preparing his disciples. He said, Beware of men. They will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, he says, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given you in that hour that you should speak. Now listen to this, verse 20. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Don't you love that? It is the Spirit of your Father. So the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of setting in place as a son, is first and foremost the Spirit of your Father. Wow. Isn't that good? You have the same spirit that is in your father. Now, at the same time, Jesus taught in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. We read it together. Because you are sons, he has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the spirit of the father is also the spirit of the son. You know, so many people are so concerned about the application of the message of grace. And if we preach grace in its purity, then surely people are going to be living in license and they're going to indulge the flesh and they're going to live in sin. Well, what I've discovered is this, that many people 
when they do start to receive the message of grace, what begins to surface in them is all the stuff in their behavior that they were able to control and suppress before when they were under the law by rigidly disciplining themselves. But the first effect of of grace upon them is that suddenly the lusts of the flesh rise to the surface and they become irresponsible and they become self-indulgent. And Paul obviously anticipated that in Galatians chapter 5 when he said, Brethren, you are called unto liberty. Only use not liberty as an occasion or an opportunity for the flesh, but by love serve one another. The first effect of grace in so many of us who have been rigidly disciplined and controlled stuff in our lives through just suppression and control and fear of exposure or fear of what God would do to us. We've done it through fear. And now that we embrace the word of grace, the first effect is that stuff starts surfacing. I was speaking to a preacher friend and he said he and his wife are dealing with stuff that before when he was under the law, they would just sort of brush under the carpet and just ignore. And now that they've embraced the message of grace and are walking in grace, it's like God saying, okay, let's deal with the stuff that you previously brushed under the carpet. So that is the first effect of it. But many are petrified and say, well, you've got to, you've got to hedge it around. You, you surely got to get some guidelines to grace. No, no, no. Let me tell you this. You have the spirit of your father and the spirit of his son who has come into you. I want to submit to you that as you yield to the spirit of his son, then the same obedience that Jesus walked in as a son, you will walk in. You will not violate the will of the father. You will not violate the character of the father. You will not violate the character of the son. In fact, you will express the character that you are now. Because you are born of his seed. You have his seed in you. You have his likeness in you. And so through the spirit of the father in you and the spirit of his son in you, you will express the character and the nature and the behavior of your father. You will walk in the father's spirit and attitude. Okay? That is why you can see that things like the Crusades, you know, although they were legitimized, in Christianity. Nevertheless, they completely violated the spirit of the Father and they violated the spirit of Jesus. Somebody quizzed me about a statement of Paul the other day. And he said, what about Paul saying, if anyone loved not our Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. And he said, what do you make of that? I said, I am a disciple of Jesus, not of Paul. And I go back and say, would Jesus have cursed anybody. And you know for yourself that when he was on the cross, he didn't even curse those who had nailed him to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We are not Paul's disciples. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul dealt with that where they in Corinth were saying, we are of Apollos, we are of Paul, we are of Peter. And others were saying, we are of Christ, but in a sectarian way. The reality is we are not Paul's disciples. We are Jesus' disciples. We don't follow Paul. We follow Jesus and we say Jesus is our model for behavior. We have the spirit of Jesus in us. And can we, with the spirit of Jesus in us, call anyone accursed? No. (laughs) No, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And that was a a symbol of the nation of Israel. It was the collective collective nation of Israel, but he doesn't curse individuals. That's not his nature at all, particularly on this side of Calvary. Okay. So you have the spirit of the father in you and you have the spirit of his son in you. Now, I want you to see how this works so closely in tandem together. And one of my favorite passages of scripture relating to sonship is in John chapter five where Jesus shows us how he functions in relationship to the Father as a son. And it's one of my key life verses that I enjoy and that I I live in. It took the Father quite a while to bring me into the reality of it. In John chapter 5 and starting at verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. 
Okay, he was violating the Sabbath and they wanted to kill him for that. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I've been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they understood the implications of Jesus' words, that he was equating himself to God the Father through what he was saying. And then Jesus said this in verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, verily, verily, the King James Version translates it, or truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. And this means of his own initiative or by his own power, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Now, I love the fact that Jesus put this in the third person. He could have easily put it in the first person. I do nothing of myself, but only what I see the father doing, that is what I do. For whatever he does, I do in the same manner. But he didn't. He said it in the third person, the son. And I believe in doing it in that way, he was giving us a model for all new covenant sons and daughters. He was showing us how this life as a son and a daughter of the father really works. I don't initiate anything of myself. What I see the father doing, that is what I do. Here we hit our first biggest problem. So many of us have believed the lie that God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, that the works of God are inscrutable and past finding out. And all of those are old covenant realities, but they are not new covenant realities. They all fit into 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And so all of those things remain just a great mystery. But what about Paul repetitively saying these things were hidden for all the ages, but now are made manifest. The mystery is now clear. That's not a mystery anymore. And so he goes on in verse 10 of first Corinthians chapter two, but God has revealed them unto us by his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God for who knows the mind of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him. And even so, no one knows the mind of God except the spirit of God. And then he says, now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. God is not withholding anything from us, but we have learned to live in this dark area because we have so exalted the sovereignty of God to a position where he's so remote and he's so removed and we're living in this mysterious place where we, we hit and miss when it comes to knowing the will of God. No, Jesus said, the son can do nothing of his own initiative. Only what he sees the father doing, that does he. Come on, people. The issue is this. Does the father show us? the things that he himself is doing. I'm glad you asked the question because Jesus answered it in the next verse. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son. There is the reality. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. But at the same time, the father judges no one. And that's where we get into trouble because so many of us have got so many judgments. We've got judgments against ourselves. We've got judgments against others. We've got judgments against God. And as a result of those judgments that we have made, we are not walking in the reality of the Father's love. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things we, he himself is doing. We have judged ourselves unworthy 
of the Father speaking to us and relating to us, for the Father revealing his heart to us. We have judged ourselves as being inferior, unworthy servants, and we muddle along in the darkness because we have believed a lie. No, no, no. The Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son and shows him all things he himself is doing. And what is he doing? He's giving life. So let me tell you what you all all will be functioning as, as sons and daughters. You will be life-giving agents. And you can understand, therefore, that if you're walking in judgments, that is going to kill life. That is going to squelch life. That is going to keep you from being the, the radiation of the Father's resurrection life that is in you as a child of God. You have His life in you. You have received eternal life. The same quality of life that is in the Father is in you through the new birth. You've been positioned as a son, and as a son, you are now going to function in this way as Jesus functioned by seeing what the Father is doing and then duplicating what the Father is doing. In 1989, God took me into such a profound lesson. It's now, what is that, 30 years ago? when I went through that whole thing of understanding that Jesus only began his ministry when he was 30. And he didn't start his ministry before that because the Father wasn't doing his ministry before that. He only began his ministry when he heard the Father affirming him, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And and I love what Jack Frost said in, 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 his, in a series of his messages on identity. He said, Did Jesus perform the miracles that he performed out of the anointing that was upon him or out of his identity as a son? And we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus ministered out of his identity as a son. And these verses back that up because he didn't just willingly say, well, I'm the Messiah. I have messianic anointing. I'm here to do messianic things. If he had that mindset, then when he went to the pool of Bethesda, he would have healed everyone who was there. But as far as we know, he only healed one man. Why? Because that's all the father was healing on that day. Have you ever wondered about the guy at the gate beautiful, how many times Jesus walked by him and didn't heal that lame man? Come on. Jesus must have walked by him because daily he was laid at the at the gate of the temple, the Bible says. And he was asking for arms, begging for arms. Jesus walked by him, never healed him. Why? (laughs) Because it wasn't what the father was doing. The father was waiting for Peter and John. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, man, this will set you free. You are not obligated because you are anointed to heal everybody and to empty hospital wards. You're obligated to discover what the father is doing and then work, walk in his works. That's all you are expected to do. Man, that is so liberating. And that's what the father impressed upon me. He said, you don't need to accept every invitation to go and preach in churches. You go where I lead you to go. And I've discovered this. Man, at times I accepted invitations to churches because I was flattered by the invitation. Oh, my word. There was very little fruit there. Uh, Probably very, very minimal fruit. Listen, but... And times I was invited to go to very large churches and the father said, don't go. They're building their own kingdom. And so I would decline uh, that, that invitation. You only go where the father tells you to go. You only tell, do what the father tells you to do. That's where how Jesus functioned and operated. Boy, that is so liberating. And when it comes to this issue of walking in your authority as a believer, It's really important that you understand that and to stay in your lane that God has appointed for you and not step outside of that lane just because you are anointed. I I was so challenged years ago listening to Kenneth Hagin about him understanding the nature of the anointing and not ministering to people after the father said it's time to quit. He had to respect his own limitations of his own body and stop when he sensed the father was saying stop because it's so easy to be compassionate 
and you ministered beyond what the Father is doing just because you are torn up by seeing the need of people and you're, you're, you, you just want to help people so much. You, you'd like to see every person in wheelchairs come out of wheelchairs. You'd like to see every sick person come out of their sickness. You'd like to meet the need of every person in lack. You, you want to just give money to everybody who's in lack, but you can't do it if the Father is not doing it. You are going to violate that precious relationship of your father-son relationship if you step outside of that. The father loves the son. All of this is predicated on the fact that he loves you. He loves you. Jump over to John chapter 17. It's Jesus' high priestly prayer. Man, I think it's the greatest insight into the father-son relationship that Jesus had with his father. Jesus spoke these words, lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may be may glorify you. Now, the first thing is, Jesus didn't close his eyes. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. That posture of lifting up your eyes to heaven, he did that when he multiplied the loaves and the, the fish. He did it at Lazarus's tomb. Lifting up your eyes to heaven doesn't mean necessarily that you're hoping to see something there, although many times you will see. But number one is it gets your eyes off the things that are around you. And it also establishes in you that your help comes from the Lord. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You lift your eyes above the mountains of impossibilities and recognize your help comes from the Lord. That's who you're connected with. Jesus didn't close his eyes. He looked up to heaven and he spoke. And the first word out of his mouth is Father. And that is repeated again in verse 5. And now, O Father, verse 11, Holy Father, Verse 21, and they all may be one as you, Father, are in me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that those also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that prayer is not for us to go to heaven, but that prayer is for us to live in the reality of living in the presence of the Father and enjoying communion with the Father and doing the works of the Father out of that place of being in his love. And so he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And now listen to this. And I have declared to them your name. Well, what is the repetitive name that he's used in this chapter? Father. Father, 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 I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. It is when you come to embrace your position as a son, when you come to embrace the fact that he placed you there, that you don't become a son through behaving right, but you become a son through the new birth. As many as received him, to them gave you the authority to become children of God. It's not by your works of righteousness. It's through the new birth that you have been positioned as a son. Through believing on his name, you've received the authority to be a son. And because you are a son, he says, I've declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, let me go back to Romans 8.15 and Galatians chapter 4. Romans 8.15, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. In Galatians chapter 4, he says, He has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit cries, Abba, Father, in Galatians 4. And in Romans, we cry, Abba, Father. There's this glorious duet. And he goes on to say in Romans 8, he says, His spirit bears witness alongside our spirit. 
bears witness alongside our spirit. So when you, by faith in the word of God, recognizing that by believing on his name, you have received the authority to be a son of God, you begin to tentatively begin to say, Abba, Father, Papa God. What happens is his spirit comes alongside your spirit and bears witness alongside your spirit. And his spirit says, Abba, Father. And you say, Abba, Father. And his spirit says, Abba, Father. Father, and your spirit says, Abba, Father, and his spirit. And some of you are saying, man, I'd feel so self-conscious to do that. That's the issue. That's the issue. Satan has neutralized us. He'll say to you, oh, you're not worthy to call him father. You're not behaving like a son. Stop looking at your behavior. That's the ploy of the enemy to neutralize you. In this whole section we're coming into of walking in authority and in dominion in your role as a son and plundering the enemy's goods. He wants to neutralize you. He wants to point at your jelly belly and say, how can you claim that? How can you say, Abba, Father, look at your behavior. You're not behaving right. Look at the way you got angry with your wife. Look at the way you lost your temper. Look at your lustful thoughts or whatever. He'll come against you to try and neutralize you by self-consciousness. Instead of understanding this incredible reality, he gave me authority. He gave me the right to be a son. It's not something I have to make my way into, ascend into, behave my way into as under the old covenant. I don't behave like God in order to become a son. I am a son and therefore I express the father's nature. So I cry out, Abba, Father, and his spirit alongside mine cries out, Abba, Father. He says, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love with which the Father has loved the Son is now ours, ours, ours through the new birth. How do you know that? Ha! Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans looks at life under the law in chapter 1 and 2, and it's miserable. And then he reveals righteousness that comes through faith. And then in chapter 5, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no more enmity. God's not checking up on us. God's not keeping records, not keeping account of us. God's not ticking off our good behavior and checking against our bad behavior. We have peace with God. The enmity is over through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also fall apart in time of trouble. No, no, no. We glory in tribulations. You see, the person who falls apart in time of conflict, in time of trouble, in time of opposition, in time of persecution, in time when stuff happens in our lives, is a person who is not established in their righteousness, who doesn't know their identity as being righteous before the Father and therefore being sons and daughters. Not only that, we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience, and perseverance produces character and character hope. So he's not excluding us from the challenges of life. I love when Jesus prayed for Peter. He said, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. He didn't say, Simon, I have rebuked Satan so that he won't sift you as wheat. <laughs> oh, Jesus, why didn't you just rebuke Satan? At that point, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. What did he pray? Oh, that you won't fall into this test and trial? No, he said, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Jesus said, in this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You are going to face these challenges because what the enemy wants to do is he wants to erode your faith. Your faith in what? Well, look at Jesus. He's just heard from the Father, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then he goes into the wilderness and after 40 days and 40 nights of starvation and no water, no food, and he's hallucinating and the enemy comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, what is he questioning? If you are the son of God, 
He's questioning the revelation of sonship. Because if he can undermine Jesus' confidence in his sonship, then he functions as a mere mortal. He functions in his humanity without the conscious anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. And that's what the enemy wanted to do. He wanted to take away the confidence Jesus had in hearing the voice of the Father saying, you are my beloved son. And the enemy does, wants to do exactly the same thing to us. He wants to undermine our confidence in the Father's affirmation to us that we are sons. And so he uses the tribulation which happens to every one of us because we're living in a fallen world because of Adam's sin and Adam's failure. But there's a coming a day when the sons of God will be manifested and it's not in heaven. We are going to, the message of grace is a forerunner to God's children. And I'm so excited to do this series because I believe that some of you are going to begin to rise up in your authority under the Father's love and begin to function in your authority. I know many of you do already. But, oh, my word, I just want to reinforce that in all of us, that we understand who we are, understand our authority, and begin to function in that place. But you won't function there if you're not assured and confident of the Father's love. And so the enemy wants to cause us to doubt that by letting trouble come in, into our lives. And immediately we think God's mad at us. He's mad at us. That's why I'm facing this trouble. And so he said, not only that we glory in tribulation, not because we're masochists, not because we love being persecuted, but because we understand that the goal of all the tribulation is to produce in us patience. Patience. Let patience have its perfect work. With glory and tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces patience and patience, character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here's the deal. You have the Father's love in your heart. You have it. You have it. You have it. Jesus prayed and God answered his prayer through his death on the cross. He said that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And he came in the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And he came through the Holy Spirit and filled us, filled us with the Father's love. That's what it says. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the love of the Father was poured out on the disciples, was poured out upon us. We have His love within us. What's separating us from the love of God? Why are not we not walking in the conscious enjoyment of his love every moment of the day? We've touched on some things. We've touched on condemnation. We've touched on the evil conscience. We've, I've touched on the self-consciousness that the enemy wants to continually remind us of our clay feet and our weaknesses. Sometimes like Paul can get to and say, oh God, would you deliver me from this weakness? And Paul said, I prayed three times for him to deliver me from this asthenia, this weakness in me, until he gave me the revelation. Paul, Paul, he said, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul said, I'd rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me because when I am weak, then I'm strong. And so we have areas of vulnerability. We always will have until we get to heaven. And the enemy knows those areas of vulnerability and he'll try to to just come against us. And so God wants to strengthen us in our knowledge of who we are and become so assured in our identity as sons and daughters that the enemy cannot shake us up. Because when trouble comes, we'll recognize, ah, this is not God who's mad at me. This is an opportunity to learn patience and for patience to produce character and character produces hope because the love of God is poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to end up with Romans 8. I ask the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? And Paul asks exactly that same question. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is he condemns? Who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? And I pointed out in that message, I think it was the, the second or third in the series, that the Father is for us, Christ is for us, and verse 26 tells us the Spirit is for us. The Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. So the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written? Well, I, I glossed over it, but what is the first word there? Tribulation. Shall tribulation or distress? See, Paul says in Romans 5, we glory in tribulation because the average Christian who is not established in grace and established in righteousness and established in sonship, when tribulation comes, they begin to question and doubt the Father's love. They doubt their identity. They, they begin to question whether they truly are sons or daughters. And they believe that God is mad at them and God is punishing them and so on. See, tribulation, if you're not careful, you can allow tribulation to separate you or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Come on. If you're in famine or if you're in nakedness, the enemy will say, oh, God doesn't love you. He's not providing for you. Look at you. If you were really a son, you wouldn't be in nakedness. You wouldn't be in peril. You wouldn't be facing shipwreck like the Apostle Paul. You must have done something wrong. And then when Paul comes off the ship and the snake binds itself to Paul's arm and the inhabitants of the island say, oh, he must be an evil man. He has escaped the sea, but man, the, the vipers got him. And you remember Paul just shook the snake off into the fire and he wasn't harmed one little bit. But we're going to face those things. But should they separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No. As it is written, verse 20, 36, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. Now listen to this. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He omitted one thing. He said things present nor things to come, at the end of verse 38. He didn't say things past. That's our problem. Our problem is this. We allow things of the past to be the basis that Satan uses to make us imagine that we are separated. We aren't separated. We aren't separated from the love of God, because it's in Christ Jesus. And he has poured out his love in our hearts. But the enemy works over time on keeping you bound up by stuff from your past. See, Jesus said, or Paul says, things present or things to come. He didn't mention the past. Because that's where we have our problems. I'm going to go back to Luke 17. And I want to just read to you the verses that precede this whole passage that is the basis of the study on authority. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea then he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day 
and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And so the disciples say, the apostles say to him, Lord, increase our faith. Why do you think they needed their faith to be increased? And the simple reason is this, that if you have been wounded, if you have been hurt, if you have been offended, the enemy wants to sow in you distrust through those offenses, distrust of others. And that distrust then gets directed toward the Father. And Jesus minimizes the need of faith because he says, you've got the faith as a grain of mustard seed. You need to understand your position. You need to understand your authority in your position. When you are the father's son, you have his same character of forgiveness and magnanimity and generosity of spirit to forgive those who've sinned against you. Do you get what he's trying to say? And what the enemy wants to keep doing is he wants to keep reminding you of the unjustness of what people have done to you and justifying you in your judgment of how wrong it was that certain things happened to you. And that is going to neutralize you all your life in receiving the Father's love, in receiving your position as a son and a daughter, and believing that the Father will show you all things he himself is doing. So here's what happens. If the first time something goes wrong, you keep looking back at somebody who has wronged you in the same way or done something to you, and you just go down the tubes of of resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness and self-rejection and self-hatred and so on. What has the enemy just done? He's absolutely won the battle in neutralizing you in this whole situation of knowing your authority and rising up in your authority in the kingdom of God. And so he's working overtime in the area of offenses. And Jesus said, woe to the world because of offenses, because it's inevitable that offenses will come. You're going to get offended. You're living in an imperfect world. Your perception of what a person did might be completely skewed. And so you get offended. They didn't intend any hurt. Or maybe they did intend to hurt you. And and maybe your perception is accurate, but still it's going to neutralize you. It's going to be the thing that the enemy uses to keep you from living in and enjoying the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. The things past. Oh, my beloved, it's time for us to put away those things. It's time to let the Holy Spirit deal with the pride in our heart that keeps us from thoroughly forgiving and letting go of the offenses of the past and stop justifying ourselves to feel that we're right in carrying that offense. In no ways can you justify that in the light of the fact that you have been forgiven by the Father. You forgive, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, the last verse, as your Father has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 5 verse 1, he says, be imitators of beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. You're going to have to learn to live sacrificially if you're going to live in the Father's love and walk as the Father's son and daughter, doing the works of the Father, walking in the Father's authority over the work of the enemy. You're going to learn to walk in quick, rapid forgiveness. Even if you have to forgive someone seven times a day, if they irritate you seven times a day. (laughs) Oh man, when you've forgiven them about three or four times, you think, man, will they ever learn? Jesus said, if he turns it seven times and says, I repent you to forgive him seven times, the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus said, no, it doesn't take much faith. If you have faith as a mustard seed, But he goes on to say in the parallel passage in Mark, and shall not doubt in his heart. And the word for doubt, and we're going to come back and look at it because it's a critical word, is thoroughly looking at a subject. And if you thoroughly evaluate and judge something, you're going to end up in doubt. You see, you obey the promptings of the Spirit without thoroughly evaluating 
the response of people. It's like what God said to me in 1989. He said, son, you'd have so little trouble in doing what I tell you to do if you didn't always think of how to explain your obedience to others. See, when I'm on my knees before the Father and I'm in his presence or sitting in the chair and meditating and and receiving revelation from him, it's so clear. But if I leave that position and I start analyzing everything and thinking through everything, very soon that word has been snatched away. And I think that's part of the cares of this world. Worrying about things as the world worries, instead of just saying, yes, Lord, when I receive the first prompting of the Spirit, when I receive the first word and immediately obeying it, when I sit down and analyze backwards and forwards, I'm going to end up in doubt. I am going to end up in doubt. And so Jesus said, you can't have doubt and just a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. And that's what he's calling us to do as his sons and daughters. We have mountains to move. We have rivers to cross. We have wealth to plunder from the enemy. We have captives to set free. We have such assignments in the kingdom of God. And many of us have never risen up into our authority, into our assignments, because of this whole area of not understanding. We have been set in place as sons and daughters. We're adopted into his family. We have been given the authority to call ourselves his sons and his daughters. Stop letting the enemy neutralize you and embrace the fact that you are a son, that you are a daughter. Now, as we end this message, I want to pray over you because some of you have to let go of stuff from your past that you're still carrying with you. And you know it's warring against you continually. Low self-esteem, self-rejection, self-hatred, because somebody rejected you. Somebody spoke words and and cursed you with, with words that made you feel like you were nothing. You were terrible. You were worthless. And people treated you like dirt. And as a result of that, it's been so difficult for you to accept and embrace the truth of your identity as a son and as a daughter. Lord, I pray for your children who have stuff in their past that continually yaps at their heels like a dog that just won't let go, that just keeps barking and just yapping at their heels. And they're so preoccupied with trying to avoid that yapping dog that they're missing out on the opportunity of living life in the fullness of your love and functioning in the fullness of your kingdom authority and exercising dominion over the works of your hand like you blessed Adam and Eve with and like you have called us back into through the finished work of the cross. Lord, I'm asking you today to enable them to just let it go, to forgive, to forgive, to forgive, to just say, I cancel the debt. I freely forgive what those people did to me and I do not hold the debt. I release the judgments I'd have made against them and the judgments that I've made against myself and the judgments I've made against God because he didn't seem to care when I was hurting and he didn't intervene and he didn't stop me getting so badly wounded. I release all those judgments. The father judges no one. You cannot walk in the father's love and walk in judgments. They are judgments are diametrically opposed to your modus operandi of being an agent of life. Do you see that? Judgments have to go. You have to let them go. The father judges no one. You can't judge someone and give them life. That's why God said to me long ago when I was grappling with the issue of homosexuality. He said, if you cannot transform them, you have no right to judge them. And I stopped judging gays and lesbians and and everybody else with aberrations because I cannot change them. Only God can change them and God doesn't judge them. He gives life to them and life will overtake death and destruction in them. The death and the destruction of the creation that is out of whack with the kingdom of God. And so Lord, right now, I pray for the healing balm of your love, just to fill the hearts of your children, to heal the wounds in them, to set them free from the past so that the past will not separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for where you're taking us. Thank you that we are masters 
Galatians 1 says we are masters of all and we, we don't want to live anymore under the pedagogue. We don't want to live with a servant mentality. We want to rise up in our identity and our position as sons and daughters, functioning in the Father's love, functioning under the Father's direction, giving life wherever we go. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the conclusion of this message. You've been listening to the ministry of John and Beverly Sheesman. For more information on this and other available teachings, please visit our website at www.liberatedliving.com. God bless you and thank you for listening.